0: From Buffalo, Toronto Public Media and WBFO, this is Buffalo What's Next Producers' Picks. Last weekend, the city of Buffalo, along with participating partners, held a series of events to observe the one-year mark of the May 14th racist shooting at TOPS. On Friday of last week, Roswell Park Comprehensive Cancer Center hosted Beyond Hate, a panel discussion. The distinguished speakers include Buffalo Mayor Byron Brown president of Spelman College, Dr. Helen Gale, the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church, the Most Reverend Michael Curry, and chancellor of the State University of New York, Dr. John B. King. On each Producers Pick episode, we normally feature highlights from the past week of shows, but today we chose to revisit this powerful conversation in its entirety. A conversation moderated by host of NPR's The Takeaway, Melissa Harris-Perry.
1: Thank you. Um, What an honor. Um, I want to say thank you to all of you for having us here today in this moment. Um, I will say I'm a little bit embarrassed to be here. Um, I don't believe in showing up in other people's cities with answers. Um, So I want to assure you that um, neither am, am I going to attempt to offer answers, nor will I elicit answers um, from the people we're talking with on the panel today. That is not what feels right to me. Um, having grown up in Charlottesville, Virginia, um, and then having, uh, being married to and having lived in post-Katrina New Orleans, I have a strong sense of what happens when your city becomes a hashtag.
2: Um,
1: and when um, outsiders and press <laughs> parachute in, um, presuming they know your story, um, presuming they have the right pathway forward for you. Um, and I just want, if I start to do that, I know we're supposed to be decorum, but if you feel some grief and some anger and some irritation, you know, I'm an I'm a old black church lady from the South, so you can, you can go ahead and, and respond. All right, no. There you go. Yes, And because I am a, an old black church lady from the South, um, before we get started, uh, we need a, a text. Roberta Drury, Margus Morrison, Andre McNeil, Aaron Salter, Geraldine Talley, Celestine Cheney, Hayward Patterson, Catherine Massey, Earl Young, Ruth Whitfield. Amen, Ashe. Mayor, I want to begin with you. What do we get wrong as outsiders? What has the past year of coverage missed about Buffalo that we need to call into this moment?
3: I think um, the coverage captured a piece of the spirit of Buffalo, not the full spirit of this community. Because after 514, in my mind, this community came together in really amazing ways, held each other up, uh, supported the families of those whose lives were taken, supported the survivors in so many different ways, showed its strength, its resilience, and the love uh, in this community. I don't know if the media really fully captured how the community came together. In my mind, and a lot of other places, from what we have seen, the community could have turned on each other. Uh, The community could have, in its anger and pain and, and rage, Uh, wanted to destroy things, tear things up, burn things down. That that did not happen in this community. Um, I think some of that was captured, but the full depth of how the community handled this horrible, horrible incident, the darkest day in the history of the city of Buffalo was truly amazing, and I think that really has to be lifted up.
1: Now, Sister President Gail, I began with the mayor because that felt like the right thing to do in this moment. But I will say, the church said amen when you came to the stage. Um, First of all, let me say to you uh, not only congratulations on your recent inauguration um, at Spelman College, but I also hope you know how much you mean to us in the broadest sense. how even those of us who who do not attend Spelman, um, how it matters to us that you are in that space, holding that place. And you, Sister President, are of course, a child of this city. Yes! Thank Thank you. So in many ways, I want to ask the same question, but I, I want to imagine that I'm asking it on five thirteen or five twelve of last year. If I'd asked you, tell me about Buffalo. Tell me about growing up here. What would your story be?
4: Yeah. Well, first, thank you. Um, and um, I'm sure there's Spellman alums in the audience. I, I can't go anywhere. We're out, Bellman alums. So, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I. Um, if I had been asked the day before, could something like this happen in Buffalo, I would say yes. Um, because, you know, Buffalo, and this is not unique to Buffalo, but we know that we have a history of race and racism. Uh, we know that white supremacy and uh, those who feed white supremacy are um, continuing that drumbeat and that a city that has never healed its racial divide and honestly dealt with the issues of race and racism um, is fertile ground for what happened. And so, you know, there is, as always, you know, we have to hold sometimes two opposing aspects in our head. There is something wonderful about the Buffalo community. Uh, It is what created me, I, you know, I feel very grateful to have been raised in Buffalo. Uh, Bishop Reverend Bishop will talk about his own uh, Buffalo roots, but I, you know, I think there is something wonderful about this community. At the same time, there are real issues um, that have not been dealt with. This very place that we're in today has a history that uh, and I had the opportunity to talk to the uh, director a bit about this, how she's come in and has tried to really think about uh, how to build a different relationship with this community. But we know that you know the very place we sit in has a long history of of mistrust with the very community that surrounds it. So you know, um, it it would not have been hard to imagine in Buffalo, uh, like many other cities that we live in, that this could happen. And I think we're here to think not just about what happened, but how do we think about moving forward and addressing the issues that we have far too long not wanted to address. And until we address them openly and honestly, um, I'm afraid that we're going to continue to see the same sorts of things that we are seeing around the country and and so.
1: Bishop Curry. I feel like, um, like President Gale invoked into this space the, um, the legacy, the language of James Baldwin, that um, our love for America, for Buffalo, for our place, um, is shown in part in our capacity to be clear-eyed and critique, and have a critique of it, right? That I love America so much that I will critique her relentlessly, right? Yeah. Um, and that it is not a lack of love that leads us there, but in fact, a belief that this place that made me can be and should be something more than this. So tell me your Buffalo story. How much time you got? <laughs> <laughs> Look, I, I know what's happening when I, when I ask an open-ended question to the bishop. I am aware.
5: Well, you know, I, like Dr. Gale, I can say that this is the city that raised me. Um, um, I spoke at a royal wedding not long ago. I have
1: to say, it was one of the blackest things that has happened. <laughs> <laughs> it was. It, it literally broke the crown. But I, yeah, yeah. I was,
5: <laughs> but I can honestly say that when I talked about love, and when I talked about justice, and human decency, and kindness, and compassion, that that's God's intention for our lives. And when we don't, as a society, live in that, then we get what happened here. You see? That's how that happens. And that's not an accident. And, but I learned the capacity and power of love to heal, to save, to liberate, to set free. I learned about that here in Buffalo, New York. And, 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 and it is that sense of love for self, for others, um, and for the other, even the other that we may be afraid of. You see, that sense of love that drives me, as you said, um, to be committed and drives us to be committed to a Buffalo, a New York state, an America, a world where, the old African slaves used to say, there's plenty of good room for all God's children. And and that commitment is not a sentimental commitment. That is a commitment to humane and decent relationships between us and humane and just relations to us in society. We grew up here with people who struggled to make Buffalo better, um, who struggled to have not just equality but equity, who struggled uh, with school systems, who struggled with continuing poverty, who struggled with blighted communities, who struggled. And much of that continues. Where, if the beat goes on, don't expect a different result from the same pattern. So, I learned that here, sometimes in hard times for our community, sometimes when the city burned sometimes when there were difficulties in the community and race relations, and when there were difficulties in relations between the political parties, and when self-interest overcame other interests. And and when that self-interest begins to rule, that's when communities and nations implode. But Buffalo did show, and I think the mayor was right, did show, although it wasn't completely covered, did show it is possible for a community to live by love and transform itself by that power. It is possible, but you know what? That doesn't make headlines. That doesn't make headlines, and that's what will ultimately save us all. And I mean all of us, black folk, white folk, Latino, Anglo, gay, straight, rich, poor, all of us, all God's children. And when we live that way, then Buffalo can be a shining city on a hill.
1: I, I want to come. I'm going I'm to come to you in just a moment, Chancellor King. I'm going to come to you in a moment because I feel like this, the the soaring oratory you just gave us. We, we also have a grounded personal story around this healing. But before we get to healing, before because you just took us to the to the New Testament, which is a beautiful thing. But I want to walk because sometimes I am not praying in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. And before we get to healing, before we get beyond hate, I want mm-hmm. to pause in hate for a moment. And maybe hate is the wrong word. I'm going to describe this as righteous anger. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, my, my grandma is a, was a domestic worker mm-hmm. um, who made the world possible for me through the struggle yeah. that you talk about. It's why if, if, if folks um, mistake me for the help or for the maid, it can't hurt my feelings. Because um, my grandmama was the, was the help and the smartest exactly. person in the room, even exactly. if other folks didn't know. Exactly. Um, and when she passed, we laid her to rest and we put her away and there was sadness and joy but but for all the struggle of her life, she passed in peace. Mm-hmm. And I know that I know that I know that I know that if my, my big sister who is sitting here right now, if some little White boy, white supremacist fool with an AR 15 took her life not in peace, just because? Then, um, I I, I mean, maybe love would save us all, but I might have to be damned all the way to hell because I would not yet be ready to walk away from just being pissed. And I don't want black folks to have to move to forgiveness and love before we can have a moment of righteous anger. That's 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 right. So given that the the assassin, the murderer, the racist who came here and did this is not from Buffalo, he drove a little behind up here Mm -hmm. for hours thinking about it, that even if Buffalo is a shining city on the hill, isn't that exactly what he came to eliminate, was that light? Where can we sit in the anger without letting it consume us so that we can build this beloved community that you've just talked about? You just answered the question.
5: You really did, I'm very serious. Sit in the anger, acknowledge it. Don't pretend it's not there. Actually, in the Bible, read the Hebrew scriptures, read the Psalms. In the Psalms, in Bible, folk get mad with God. If God can handle that anger 2,000 years ago, he can handle your anger and mine right now in the 21st century. Let Deal with it, name it, face it, and then say, Lord, I need your help. And I need the help of this community to help me transform, you know transformers, transform my anger into righteous sense of justice. Transform my anger into a love that is not syrupy, that is not sentimental, that's not covering up, but into a love that will change this so that no other family has to go through this ever again. You see what I'm saying? Take it and transform it. But you gotta acknowledge it. Love begins with truth telling. It always begins with truth telling. And healing begins with truth-telling, including acknowledging my feelings and acknowledging and dealing with what's going on. Good therapy requires dealing with the truth. And when you deal with that, somebody said, I think it's in the New Testament, if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. All right, That's the same brother talked about love. And so acknowledge that truth, face it, deal with it, and that's true for communities. When we, look, I'm a cancer survivor colon cancer. When the doctor told me I had cancer, I could have denied that truth. And if I had, I wouldn't be sitting here right now. Right? But at some point, my wife hit me over the head and said, fool, listen to this man." <laughs> and I said, I got to face the truth, truth I didn't want to hear. We in our country sometimes don't want to hear the truth about what has happened to indigenous Americans, what has happened to African-Americans, what has happened to women, LGBTQ <laughs> folk, what has happened. But, Acknowledge that truth, face it, deal with it, and then constructively begin to work to change it. That's how we move forward. That's what love looks like. Last time I checked, the brother who talked about love died on a cross, but then he got up from the grave. All right? I know you didn't want that on that, but that's that, all right. Okay. <laughs> okay, I'll stop.
1: <laughs> we can't go back to Easter right now, okay, so. All right, Listen. All right. But I, so I want to ground this. So, John King, it's hard for me not to call you secretary. I have to, I have to call you, by you you, gotta, you have a whole job. i got to call you by chancellor. Um, this piece that we've, this, like, we're going to sit in the angle, we're going to tell the truth about it, then we're going to come to a place of healing. So, Chancellor King, I, I wonder if you can walk us a bit through, because I, you have this family story, that you gave us access to in the world um, uh, by writing about it. And I can remember reading it in the paper like, wait, what? He did what? Because you and I had known each other for some time. And and you've always been a person of of grace and of kindness and of openness. But but again, I don't know. I might be a little too Old Testament. I was like, no, you did what? But then it's been beautiful and a thing that I've come back to many times. So can you tell us a bit about that story?
6: Sure. So first, let me say I'm honored to be on this stage with these incredible folks. I think when we talk about what happened a year ago, we have to situate it in the context of our history as a country and, and not think of it in, in isolation, but acknowledge that, that racism and hate are a part of our American story. And that's painful to say, but true. And there's always been this strand in our politics and in our society of trying to blame, trying to divide, trying to build up some by, oppressing others, uh, and, and we have to grapple with that, and there are folks who don't wanna talk about that, who don't want that to be taught in history class, who don't want that to be talked about on campuses, and we have to reject that, because if we don't have an honest conversation about our history, we can't move forward. And, and in, in my family, we powerfully confronted this because uh, when, I was, when I was Secretary of Education for President Obama, I was, I was invited to give a commencement address at University of Maryland Eastern Shore, where my grandmother graduated in 1894. <laughs> and uh, in preparation for the speech, I decided to embark on a, on a family history research project because I wanted to talk about my grandmother and her history and, and our family's history in the speech. And so started doing research. Like most African Americans knew that slavery was a part of our story, uh, but one night I got an email from a, from a researcher who was helping me with this project and she said, you know, I found where your family was enslaved, and not only that, I found the exact property. And the property is still owned to this day by the family who are direct line descendants of the, the family that enslaved your family. And they've maintained the property just as it was in the 1860s, the cabin, That your great-grandfather and his family lived in as enslaved people is still standing on the property. Mm -hmm. Scathersburg, Maryland, we were living in Silver Springs 25 miles from my house. And so then we have this family conversation, this complicated family conversation. What do you do? Do you you write a letter? Do you send an email? Do you call ahead? (laughs) Like, How do you embark on this conversation? My cousin, uh, had been visiting the Smithsonian African American History Museum. There's an enslaved people's quarters in that museum. If you haven't been there, everyone should go multiple times. She saw that, and she said, you know, I'm just going to go. So my cousin went and knocked on the door and said, our, our, our people are from here. And it, and it launched this conversation that we've had with the family, who are uh, directly descended from, from the family that enslaved ours. And, and it has been a fascinating uh, journey to both Grapple with that history, to stand inside of that cabin where you are deeply conscious of the intimacy and cruelty of the institution of slavery. That cabin is not 30 feet from the main house. These were two families living in the same physical space, one owning the other. That's our history, right? That is part of the, the unbroken string of what happened here a year ago. That's part of our history, right? But also to stand inside of that cabin with my wife and my daughters and acknowledge and i'm alive today because my ancestors survived because they persevered and, and and to and to recognize that in my family we went in three generations from enslaved in that cabin to serving in the cabinet of the first black president to say that my my ancestors lived with faith in in a future they could not see and so now we've embarked on this conversation with the family to recognize that we share this history together that is complicated and we've had hard conversations you know that and we become friends genuine friends but Mm -hmm. but even though they grew up with the the quarters next to their house they hadn't grappled with this history fully And one of the things they said to us was, we hope our people weren't cruel to your people. <laughs> and and, I, and, I, and I, I understood what they meant, right? I mean, they meant, we hope that our family didn't torture your family. But what I tried to say to them is, slavery is torture, <laughs> right? And but that's hard, because that means they have to grapple with a different understanding of who their ancestors were and of their history, and that has been a hard journey for them. And I appreciate that they have been open to these conversations. They've been open to learning. And, and it has transformed both of our families. But that is the that is our American family. That is the conversation we have to have as an American family.
1: Now you all see why when I was reading the story, I was like, what? What? <laughs> Um, and, and John, I'll say, you know, for me, the, you know, and, and this is going to sound tongue-in-cheek, but I promise, I'm coming to you, Mayor, on the back end of this. But you know, my, my the, the moment I was waiting for was when they wrote you a check. <laughs> and, and, and um, as far as I know, they have not. Um, and, and, and although, again, I know that sounds tongue-in-cheek, I, I do wonder how this, um, because you come back to this space without financial need, and, and having served in the cabinet of the first black president. right? So there is a kind of triumphant story that allows forces them to encounter your humanity. I wonder, had your family come back in financial need? And so, so, so Mayor Brown, the 30 feet away cabin, for me, when I think, and I could getting this wrong, because again, I'm an outsider, but I just keep thinking about the highway here. Um, If Chancellor King's story is the American story and we are just 30 feet away, um, it does seem to me it's the 33, is that right? Is that distance? Can you talk to me about about who's gonna write the check? Where are the resources? Who is responsible? How is it possible to start talking about resources made available to bring together a beloved community across the kind of violence that is done by that urban renewal destruction that is the highway. I'm
3: I'm glad you raised the question about who's going to write the check, because billions of dollars are going to come in to the city of Buffalo from the federal government. From the state government, there's county money, there's, there's city money. We talk about East Buffalo, we talk about the east side of, of Buffalo, uh, but at the federal level, at the state level, they don't want to really say black Buffalo. Because who was affected? Who was killed? Who was directly traumatized? And when you try to direct resources to those who have been systematically left out, systematically damaged, you know, you talk about um, health racial inequities, you talk about racial economic inequities, you talk about educational inequities, well, if you are going to properly intervene, you have to design public policy in a way that the black people who were harmed see those resources. So if they're going to deck over the 33, how many black people are going to be working on that project? Right now, you got to know, there are probably less than 3% of black people that are working in that industry. So when we talk about a billion dollars being spent, who's going to be working to do that? When we talk about black business, is black business going to benefit? How much of those dollars will flow to black businesses? Well, in this area, in this city, in this region, probably less than 4% of black businesses are even available to work in that industry. You talk about the damage that will be done to homes when they're doing that that work. Is money going to go to the homes of black property owners that, that live in proximity to that project? You talk about the trauma that some of the families who were in the store, survivors, weren't shot but they're still feeling. There were children in the store at the time of that. Trauma, not doing well in in school. Will there be money for educational interventions? The ongoing counseling that people will will need to see people slaughtered in front of them. I, I remember just walking into the parking lot after the police commissioner called me and told me what was happening and rushing there and seeing bodies laying on the ground in, in the parking lot covered with sheets and the bottom of the sheets getting red with, with, with blood. I feel that, that trauma. I can only imagine the nightmares, the pain, the horror that people feel that actually saw people getting shot down in that way, so I think the federal government, the state government, they need to intervene in such a way that the dollars that are being spent will benefit black people that live in East Buffalo, and we need to not be afraid to call it out and say black, say East Side, right. And there are things in federal law and state law that make direct intervention difficult, very difficult. In situations like this, President came here, called it an act of domestic terrorism, called it an act of evil. We need to find a way, not saying reparations, but we need to find a way to repair the damage And those who were damaged directly were black people.
1: I'm not an elected official, uh, and I have tenure, so I am happy to say reparations. Um, So because, because. Mayor, to be clear, I respect. We got. to, I mean, there are things that some of us can and cannot say. It's part of the the, the beauty of tenure, right? Um, it's part of why it is part of why there is an attack on tenure, right? It is part of why there is an attack on tenure, right? It, this is not just about trying to go get some folks up here. It's that tenure is meant to give us the space to do some truth speaking, right? So, um, so we are all constrained by the institutions in which we work, and electoral institutions in a uh, in a government system where there are cities and states and right are particularly constraining. I just tend to have a little less constraint in those spaces, which is why I get fired a lot. Um, <laughs> but, but President Gale, I want to I come to you because there, there, there's a, there, you are now the president of Spelman. You ha- also have a deep um, uh, trajectory and history in philanthropy and, um, and, and community work. And, I, and I'm interested in also philanthropic dollars, um, which we saw pour into black communities after the murder of George Floyd, and then we have seen often pulled back, right? and, and ph- philanthropy institutions will have a priority one year that says we're doing this, and then two years later they'll have another one. Can you talk to me as daughter of Buffalo, as educator, as community person, are there, are there connections and pathways that we might be missing about how we can bring resources that then the east side black buffalo, folks on the ground can make choices about not only where the resources come from, but how they're spent, what the needs are, Right, making those decisions.
4: No, thank you. And, and so I would say um, I'll start by uh, talking about this day and the importance of it. So you know I think it is clearly important that we have days like this that um, make sure that we don't forget and that the memories, even as difficult as they are, are, are memories that we don't sweep under the rug, as everybody has said. Um, but, and I think it is important for, as you started out your comments, for communities to think about how they come together, uh, how they think about healing, and all of the things that are so you know, foundational to this. But at the end of the day, Um, we are going to change the situation that we face ourselves in Buffalo, uh, but more broadly the nation, by getting results. And results won't happen um, and there won't be change unless the community is the driver of that change. And so we've talked a lot about dollars and I think it's great to have the federal dollars and the state dollars coming in, but who really is making those decisions? And unless we have a community led, uh, community engaged uh, process that says those who have been most harmed should be the ones who are making decisions about where dollars go. (laughs) And, you know, so, you know. Right before this job, I was heading the Community Foundation in Chicago, and I'm uh, pleased to see my uh, former colleague who had, who used to head the Community Foundation here in Buffalo, Um, and we had a strategy around closing the racial and ethnic wealth gap uh, because we felt that was kind of core and fundamental to everything else—the health gap, the education gap, etc. And one of the things that we Um, really focused on was how do we talk about shifting the power dynamics because unless you start shifting the power dynamics unless you have the community at the at the core of the response um, we will continue to have the same results as we've had and until we think about a sustained um, approach we will have what we have had which is dollars flow in when there's a crisis and then dollars flow back to where they were before the crisis. And until we say that we did, this did not happen overnight so we are not going to solve it overnight and it takes the kind of sustained um, uh, approach to, to really making change. So you know, specifically to your answer, I think one of the things we don't do enough is to think about the different ways in which different dollars can be used. So philanthropic dollars can be the first dollars in. Philanthropic dollars can pilot, can show proof of concept, et cetera. But then you do need federal dollars to follow behind that. The business community has a a huge role to play. And I think we sometimes don't think about how the profit motive only continues to, exacerbate some of the things that we talk about. Uh, because if it's profit before people, you're not going to have the kind of long-term approach that is necessary. So I think it, you know, we, we tend to come out of these crises thinking that there is one uh, fix, and there's a magic wand that's going to change it. And I think we have to remember that unless we're thinking about this very comprehensively, and very long-term and sustained, we aren't going to change. And unless we're thinking about the power dynamics that led to these issues to begin with, and putting community first, and putting community as the driver of the change, then we really are not going to have the kind of change that will be long-term and sustained. And I would just say, Mm -hmm said, than done. None of us like giving up power. Uh, if we've been in the power seat for 400 years, it's real difficult to say, all right, I am going to let somebody else leave. But until we do that, we are going to continue to have what we have.
1: Yep. Yep. Chancellor King, it feels to me like um, you know, as, as, as President Gill brought us to this space, right, to this physical location, and thinking about how institutions as they exist have relationships that that predate even the folks who are currently leaders. And yet, as leaders of these institutions, and you as leader of the SUNY system, I'm wondering, as we're hearing about notions like federal dollars, philanthropic dollars, and community building, knowing the challenging relationship that institutions of higher ed have had with black communities nationally, but also right here, what is what are some of the roles and responsibilities of institutions of higher ed relative to making, facilitating this work, getting this work done?
6: Look, we, we are responsible to help us move towards justice. right? And so that, that means a few things. One is it means our institutions have to serve a student population that looks like New York. And that is not true today. Uh, Black students are systematically underrepresented across higher ed institutions, and we have to change that. It means that our faculty and our leadership teams have to reflect the diversity of of New York, and that is not true today. Uh, We we need to to work harder, and this is a priority for me, to recruit black faculty uh, at every level of our institutions so that students can see themselves reflected, but also so that white students, can see a diverse community of scholars uh, supporting academic excellence. And and we need to teach about this history, and we need to cultivate empathy in our students. So at, at, at SUNY, we have put in place a new general education requirement that every student across SUNY, no matter what they're studying, will have to take a course that Uh, Grapples with issues of diversity, equity, inclusion, and social justice. And and so we're doing the opposite of Florida, right? (laughs) to support faculty in that because, again, this is not every discipline, so it's not just for the history student or the sociology student. It's for the student studying to be a nurse or a doctor. It's important for them to grapple with the racial health disparities that the mayor referenced, right? It's for the student who's going into computer science, who needs to understand that the algorithms can reinforce bias, Uh, who needs to understand that the tech companies do not reflect the diversity of America and therefore make choices that exacerbate our divisions. right? But uh, So as educational institutions, we have, to, we have to lead on preparing students who will help us build uh, a more just, more equitable future.
1: All right, Bishop, I'm going to ask you a similar question. And then I've got two last almost like speed round questions that are going to be very hard, but we're going to have to do them speedily anyway. But, because I've asked about the role of the government, the role of philanthropy, the role of higher ed, you know what's coming next. Athletics? Yo, there you go. Yes. How should the Buffalo Bills address okay, yes. this question? All right, yeah. Yes. No, no, no. We got to talk about it. Talk to me about the church. Mm-hmm. And um, there is not one the church, right? It's not just like, you know, here's people, people, but like. Right. But what it, how do you see the, the responsibilities? Of the church, because churches and colleges both got this nonprofit thing where y'all don't pay the taxes. So, since you don't pay the taxes on the land, what is your responsibility relative to resources and justice in communities?
5: Well, you know, I mean, the reality is, and I would expand it beyond churches, churches, synagogues, mosques. We must all, oh, yeah, everybody, oh, yeah. All the non taxpayers. All the non taxpayers, religious folk, right. <laughs> And, and I heard the mayor make a plea. And part behind that plea was we, Buffalo must pull together in order to access the dollars that are necessary to be controlled by the people who have been affected. And that's not going to happen unless we all get over ourselves. And, and I say that as, you know, I'm a Christian. I, I love Jesus. Don't worry about that, all right? Don't worry about that. But I also believe that Jesus said, in my father's house are many mansions, all right? So we need to bring all the mansions together. We need to bring all the religious traditions together. And what is it that we can do together for the good and welfare of this community and to help this mayor and other leaders in this community bring the dollars to Buffalo and let the people who have been affected control how they are distributed? That's what we need to do. And so, There there is a passage, and I'm gonna stop. You didn't ask for a sermon, I know that. But in in the prophet Jeremiah, in the Hebrew scriptures, where the uh, the people of God were in exile, and the Lord said through Jeremiah, you must seek the welfare of the city where you are. That's what we religious folk, churches, synagogues, mosques, seek the welfare of the city where we are. I think it's called buffalo. As a child, I always wondered, why is it called buffalo after the ugliest animal God ever put, oh, excuse me, anyway. (laughs) But beautiful animal, beautiful animal, yeah. (laughs) But seek the welfare of the city, come together. Um, You you, you don't have to compromise your faith or your doctrine. Your your doctrine is to seek the good. What does the Lord require of us but to do good, to love justice, and to walk humbly with God. That's what God requires. Let's do God's work and do it together. Get over ourselves, and when we do that, everybody wins. That's how we do it. That was a short answer.
1: I want, to, I want to sit in it for just one more moment, because I think it is, um, I don't want to miss the theological move that you made by bringing us to um, humility in the context of the love of God, because so much of the version of, of God that we hear right now is this muscular, supremacist, um, power-hungry, armed. Yep. Yep. Um, and you, you brought us both to the cross, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is a pretty vulnerable God, yeah. right? Yeah. I worship a God who could be killed
2: yeah.
1: by the state. Yes. Right? I worship a God who was put in the electric chair of. Okay. And that can be hard for folks who want to see God as all-powerful, and that, that being with God means that you, you won't have a cross, right? So I, I just don't want to move mm. too far yet, because I think it's, we can feel like, oh, we got to go succeed and, and win in this world. And you brought us to the cabin 30 feet away Um, I know at Spelman, at at many black houses, that's why you said the buffalo is ugly, because my people all went to Howard, and so the bison and the buffalo, like we got them all over the house. They're not not ugly, sorry, they're beautiful. Um, But you know, we'll we'll see those t-shirts, I am my ancestor's wildest dream, Mm -hmm. which which I get, understand, but I I always think the wildest dream must have been for themselves. I mean, I want great things for my children and my grandchildren, my great-greats and all those that I can't see, but I am assuming that the ancestors, for whom I have a pretty bad case of ancestor worship, also imagined in their wildest dreams that they might be free.
5: They did. They dreamed it.
1: And they endured it nonetheless. And so you've brought us to all these places, all of you. So I've got two for you, but I'm going to start with this first one. And you can reflect on it however you want, from whatever standpoint. You can even pass on it. But I just. Why are we more, as a nation, worked up about, angry about, talking about, spending ink and hours and minutes and legislative capacity on ensuring access to guns over groceries? <laughs> guns and groceries, however you want to come at that one.
3: Well, there, there are just about half the people that we have elected to represent us in Washington that are putting the profits of gun manufacturers who fund their campaigns over the lives of American citizens. And Americans need to stand up. This is not, yes. This is not just happening in urban communities, this is happening in suburban and rural communities as well. It's not just black people, innocent black people that are getting shot down um, in churches and schools and grocery stores. It's white people, it's Hispanic people, it's Muslim people, it's Jewish people. We as Americans need to stand up and we need to say to the fifty percent in Washington that won't do anything that we won't take it anymore.
4: Yeah, I guess I would just build on that to say, you know, I think, and I uh, mentioned this in my earlier comments, you know I think until we also start addressing the economic system that we have, which puts a profit motive into everything, and that that then overrides all of the other things that we try to accomplish. and so you're right, I think the gun lobby, uh, the fact that arms is a um, you know, incredibly lucrative um, industry, you know has to be addressed as well. And I think that you know we know that slavery was as much about economic gain right. as anything else. and so you know we, we have a country that has a system that you know, wonderful aspects of it, but on the other hand, there are parts of it that have, uh, we have run away with. And I think we've got to come back to thinking about how do we bring all of these things into balance. It's about balance. And you know, yes, we know the positives about having a system that has uh, competition and you know, gets innovation and all the other things. But we also have a system that we know has, has created the largest wealth gap Um, That continues to widen. And so we can't continue to have systems that have uh, an economic incentive to stay the way that we are and not address that as well. It's guns, but it's more broad than just guns. And I think we have to start having honest discussions around that aspect of who we are as well. We have, we have
6: a history as a country of the, at this intersection of guns, violence, fear, and racism. And it's a very toxic mix that has always been with us. You think about the, the history of the Ku Klux Klan, you think about uh, when, when slavery ended and black people made progress during reconstruction, then the Ku Klux Klan and grassroots violence emerged as a, as a vehicle to control black people and to undermine that progress. And you think about the history of lynching, in this country and we won't talk about all of that. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to acknowledge that pain. And so we have to start there with that honest conversation and then we have to look at our current media environment and and the ways in which it is lifting up and tapping into and amplifying that culture. Uh, The tech companies have to be responsible uh, for what they are producing in our society. Young, young people who are troubled and disconnected are finding communities of hate online. And those communities are then connecting to a gun culture. And we see these incidents and we don't do anything. And so I, I agree 100% uh, with the mayor about the need to tackle our gun laws. And I also think we need to, to, to treat this, this sickness in our culture. Yeah. Um, and And we have to do it urgently because these incidents feel constant, yeah. right? I mean, we're here talking about this incident that happened a year ago, and yet, now it's every day. And, and, and in a way, I fear that we are getting um, accustomed to it, almost immune to it, numb. Be- and yeah. numb to it. That's right. And, and you know, I had a conversation with my daughters a few years ago after one of these terrible incidents, because I realized that they have phones, and so you know, the news pops up on your phone. So there was a mass shooting and I was worried about it and I figured they had seen it on their, on their phone so I engaged them about it. And my younger daughter, who was maybe 12 at the time said, oh, well, that happens all the time. <laughs> just like that. Not, not in, just, She's right, it does happen all the time. And so that's right. deeply yeah. frightening to me and we as a country, seen, we're like the, the frog in, in in the slowly boiling water. It's it's happening, and we're we're not reacting, and that is is really scary for our future. Uh,
5: the only thing I would add, and I agree with everything, is that we must kind of it's similar to what you're saying. We have allowed, or it has happened, um, right-wing extremism, white supremacy, um, fear of the other to become normal. I mean, we, we actually have. Now, I'm not casting blame. I'm just saying that it, that is the way. And when that happens, then the unthinkable becomes thinkable. It does. And that's happened to us. And one of the ways t- to challenge that is to interrupt it. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't remember who it was said the only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for good people to do nothing. Yeah. It's time for good folk to do something. Mm-hmm. Time for good folk to do something. And, and, to, and to interrupt it um, on the political level, why would we vote for anybody who does not stand for responsible, sensible, gun legislation that (laughs) treasures human life over a gun. Why would anybody vote Republic? That's a nonpartisan statement, right? And, And yet it continues to happen, so interrupt it interrupted in the social media. Why are we tolerating? Because there's stuff going on from right-wing extremism on social media that we don't see normally, because they got their own networks and own ways of communicating. Why is that even tolerated by the social media companies? Why does our legislative uh, leadership tolerate that, interrupt it? And that's the only way I see to kind of help to break that cycle in addition to what we're talking about, to interrupt what has been normalized and create a new normal. That's the only way. That's the one thing I can add to that. Anyway. Because you know what? We, can't, we cannot continue going down this road.
1: Yeah. We are over time, but <laughs> I got tenure, so I don't care. So here's what, here's what we're going to do. Um, so I want you all to think about this for just one moment, and then I want it's going to be just one sentence from each of you. I promise. <laughs> no, no, no. Check it out. So, so here, here's the story. Here's a really fast story on this. So, Um, My my elder sister is here with me, so she knows this to be true. She can fact check. So growing up, um, my father, who grew up in the Jim Crow South um, and knew racial terror as part of his daily reality growing up, um, he always, for for, for all of the kids in the family, what you get on your birthday is you get a card. um, And Daddy will say, I love you, but he he never writes I love you in the card, right? So just stick with me. So everybody gets, somebody's going to know the answer to this. You get a, a birthday card, and there are there's money in it. How many dollars are in the birthday card each year? You, I love y'all. Yes, right. So if if you're five, you get five dollars. If you're ten, you get ten dollars. Right. This yeah. year, right in October, I'm gonna get fifty bucks. It's gonna be great. <laughs> All right. So right. So the number of dollars are the years that you are. And and again, he doesn't sign it, love daddy. He'll say I love daddy, but he signs it. The struggle continues. Oh yeah. Daddy. So when you're five, you're like hot on the five dollars, but you're also like the struggle continues. <laughs> Sure. Like like son, what are we talking about here? What is what does this mean? What I've come to understand is that that was the gift. So, mm. so that for me is where I can go every time. It's a catechism for me, right? Yeah. It is when the thing happens. I remember because I have ancestor worship that if it was easily solvable by being smart, by being courageous, by being willing to sacrifice, it would already be solved. Because Anna Julia Cooper was smarter than me, and Ida B. Wells was much more courageous, right? right. Because because Du Bois, they would have just fixed If It was just solvable by being cute and smart and willing and courageous. Our ancestors wanted to solve it for us so it would already be solved. The reason it is not solved is because it is not that easy. So our job is to be in the struggle because the struggle continues. So that is my catechism. That is my, my verse. So what I want from each of you is a verse, just a, a one thing in the continuing struggle that we can come back to. And I don't mean to like make it light or easy, quite the opposite. Just What is a thing? Is it a holding on to love? Is it a it can be better tomorrow? Is it a, well, hell, this too? Whatever it is. <laughs> Because we say a lot of words, but th- I promise this will be the thing that people walk away with. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to let you speak as the spirit moves you, but what's your one, what's your birthday card message that we can take?
3: The, the family, the ancestors, of course said many things. I'm going to use treat others the way you want to be treated. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
4: Yeah, I guess I would say um, how important it is to face the truth. And I think you started with Baldwin. I, I, and I think this was his, a quote from him that nothing can be changed if not everything that is faced uh, won't necessarily change, but nothing will change if not faced. And I just think unless we face the truths, uh, and we've talked about a lot of them here, we're not going to see real change. <laughs>
6: You know, President Obama would often quote Dr. King, saying that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. We have to stay faithful that we can do the bending towards justice.
5: I will quote Desmond Tutu. Talking about how God works, how change happens. He said, by himself, God won't. By ourselves, we can't. But together with God, we can.
0: We thank you for joining us. This has been Buffalo What's Next, Producers' Picks. We'd like to thank the city of Buffalo's Office of Communications and Roswell Park Comprehensive Cancer Center for hosting the panel discussion you just heard. As a reminder, Buffalo What's Next airs on WBFO every weekday, 10 to 11, and gets re-aired each weeknight at 9. It's also available wherever you get your podcasts, the Amplify BTPM app, as well as on WBFO.org. I'm Lorenzo Rodriguez. Thank you very much for listening. You're listening to WBFO and WBFO HD1, Buffalo, WOLN, Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station.